0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehilat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: I've been talking to you for the last several weeks about the lecture series by Micha Goodman and uh, his his commentary on Deuteronomy and kind of what he. He focused on eight different topics in the lectures, and one of those lined up with our reading last week of Chapter 8. And um, this week, uh, one of his lectures lines up with the Torah portion from this week, I'm very happy to say, um, which is Chapter 12 of the Book of Deuteronomy. So if you have a Tanakh in front of you, and or if you want to open a tab on your computer for Safaria, uh, safaria safaria.org, and you can follow along any of the texts, Uh, there so this is um, not starting at the very beginning of the parsha but we're in the first triennial reading so this is part of the first third of this parsha so these are the laws and the rules that you must carefully observe in the land that adonai god of your fathers is giving you to possess as long as you live on earth you get to possess it for as long as you live on earth if right remember we had that whole conversation last week you like y'all will way destroy all of the sites at which the nations you are to dispossess worship their gods, whether on lofty mountains and on hills or under any luxuriant tree. So what do we know about where idol worship would happen, where people would build a shrine uh, is on mountaintops. That makes sense to us, right? Um, and hills are another place that people would do that. Um, also trees, uh, in certain, uh, in a certain sense could be a symbol of the goddess Asherah. Uh, and sometimes they would put up a wooden post that was to be the symbol of a tree, which was the symbol of Asherah and her presence uh, at the altar. So trees make sense on some level. And what are you to do with their mis- Mizbeach, with their altar, you are to tear it down and you are to smash Vishibartam, You will smash Matzevotam, their Matzevot, their standing pillars, which is also a symbol of the presence of the deity um, in these uh, small sacrificial cult sites. Put their sacred posts to the fire. So these are the wooden posts that are to be the symbol of the goddess Asherah, and cut down the images of their gods, obliterating their name from that site. All right, this is what you're supposed to do when you get to the land, Israelites. Did they do that? No. So this is the reality that the Deuteronomist is dealing with, is that they did not do that. And there's lots of worship of Baal and Asherah and all this other stuff going on in the land. So the Deuteronomist puts it back in the mouth of Moshe. Do not worship. Lo ta'asun la Adonai lohechem. You will not worship yod heh vav like that. How? Ki im asher yivchar adonai So how are you going to worship yod heh vav that's different? This is new for Deuteronomy. Remember, this is a reform. This is a religious reform. So, what is the new? What, what is the reform? You will worship Yehovah only at the site where God will choose amidst all your tribe, right? Lashum et shmo to place God's name Sham there. Lishichno, where God will choose to establish, right? Um, God's name. There you are to go, and there you are to bring your burnt offerings and other sacrifices, your tithes and contributions, your votive and free will offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks. Remember, they belong to God. The firstborn belongs to God. Together with your households, you shall feast there before Yudhe Vefe, your God. Happy in all the undertakings in which Yudhe Vefe, your God, has blessed you you shall not act you shall not act at all as we now act here meaning in the desert every person as he pleases because you have not yet come to the allotted haven that יהוה your god is giving you so you're not going to do in the land because we haven't gotten to the land yet we're still in the desert you're not going to do when you get to the land what you do here okay doing whatever you want. You have to follow a central set of rules. When you cross the Jordan and settle in the land that your God is allotting to you and God grants you safety from all your enemies around you and you live in security, then you must bring everything that I command you to the site where your God will choose to establish God's name, your burnt offerings and other sacrifices, your tithes and contributions. You hear the language over and over and over and all the choice votive offerings that you vow to YHWH, and you shall rejoice before YHWH your God with your sons and daughters with your male and female slaves along with the levite in your settlements remember to take care of the levite because what are we doing we are taking away their job by centralizing worship in Jerusalem you have just put out of work all of the local levites who would have served at the shrines all around Israel and now they are out of work. They're not going to get those portions of those sacrifices because now all the sacrifice is going to happen at the Jerusalem temple and the only place they're going to be able to eat or get a good serving of steak is when it's their turn to serve in the Jerusalem temple. So this is so So Deuteronomy is coming to say don't forget to take care of the Levite who has no other portion, who's not going to have produce, who's not going to have fields. They only have what they get from y'all. Take care not to sacrifice your burnt offerings in any place that you like, but only in the place where yod will choose in one of your tribal territories. We, of course, know where that is, <laughs> There you shall sacrifice your burnt offerings, and there you shall observe all that I enjoyed upon you. But here's the big change of Deuteronomy: Whenever you desire, you may slaughter and eat meat in any of your settlements, according to the blessing that Ydhevaphe your God has granted you, the unclean and the clean alike, meaning people, may partake of it as of the gazelle and the deer. This is new. Now you can eat meat wherever you want, and it does not have to be sacrificial meat. But you must not partake of the blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. You may not partake in your settlements of the tithes of your new grain or wine or oil or the first things of your herds and flocks, right? Those will have to be consumed where, says verse 18, before YHWH, your God, in the place that God will choose, meaning the temple in Jerusalem. And here we go again at 19. Be sure not to neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land, because now the Levites are going to be, according to Deuteronomy, right, dependent on uh, on gifts and those kinds of things because they have no land. When Yudhe Vavhe enlarges your territory as God has promised you, and you say, "I shall eat some meat," for you have the urge to eat meat, you may eat meat wherever you wish. This is a big change, and we're going to talk a little bit about what Micha Goodman sees as the the move here. If the place where Yudhe Vavhe is chosen to establish God's name is too far from you, you may slaughter any of the cattle or sheep that yod heh -Heh gives you as I have instructed you, and you may eat to your heart's contents in your settlements. Eat it, however, as the gazelle and the deer are eaten. The unclean may eat together with the clean, because it's not a sacrifice. Only people who are in a state of ritual purity could eat the sacrifices, remember. But make sure that you do not partake of the blood, for the blood is the life, and you must not consume the life with the flesh. You must not partake of it. You must pour it on the ground like water. You must not partake of it, in order that all will go well with you and your descendants for doing what's right in the sight of God. But such sacred and votive donations as you may have shall be taken by you to the site that Yothevafay will choose. You shall offer your burnt offerings, both the flesh and the blood. Okay, pay attention here. Micha wants us to. Micha wants us to pay attention to this. You shall offer your burnt offerings. olatecha. Right. You will make your burnt offerings. The flesh and the blood on the altar of Adonai, your God, and of your other sacrifices. The blood shall be poured out on the altar of yod your God, but you will eat the flesh. All right. And then it goes on to say, "Be Be careful, 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 be careful. You're not going to do what they do. Don't do what they do. Don't do what they do. Be careful, be careful, be careful, be careful. Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit about this, this move. So what's just happened? We, we we're getting in these chapters, we are getting, um, a recapitulation of the relationship between the people and God's house before now, There could be a Mizbeach, there could be an altar and your local Levites that you would go to anytime you had the need for a sacrifice because you sinned and you just found out because you were pure and and you were impure and didn't know it and did something you're only supposed to do if you're pure, uh, because you want to give an offering of gratitude because something good has happened to you, whatever the reason is that you are going to bring uh, a sacrifice. You did that locally, and the only meat that people ate was sacrificial meat. Remember, they can't drive up to Wendy's and get a hamburger. They can't go to Chick Fil A to eat chicken, right? They they had they had to kill the animal and eat it. There were no freezers. There was no way other than salting it. There was no way to preserve meat, so you had to eat that whole animal. That's a lot. Of meat. That's a lot of food. So, so it makes some sense that it would only be meat that was sacrificed because if you're going to do something as extravagant as kill an animal like a sheep or a goat or a cow, it's a big deal, right? The whole clan, the whole village is going to eat and is going to eat well, right? Think about how much meat is on an entire animal. That's a lot of meat. And they didn't eat a lot of meat. So it's not like us. I can eat a whole steak. No problem. Whole big ribeye, baked potato, the whole thing. No problem. But back then they didn't eat that much meat, right? They weren't that meat dependent. So when they had it, it was a special thing. Um, and you can imagine they didn't digest it. Like, you know, if you don't eat it a lot, right? So, so this was a very big deal that you had, Uh, meat that was being eaten and consumed. So what is this move to say, you can now eat meat wherever you are, and you don't have to sacrifice it? The only place sacrifice is allowed is in the place where God will cause God's name to dwell. You might think, says Mecha Goodman, you might think this means that the temple is much more important. The temple's becoming much more important because it becomes the focus. It becomes the only place you can sacrifice and the only place you can bring your tithes and eat them. It's the only place you can bring certain, offer, certain you know, things that they were supposed to bring and eat it. You have to eat it before you had a in Jerusalem. But now, so so you might think that this is central. This centralization of sacrifice is really lifting up sacrifice and the temple as something super special. Let's look back at verse twenty-seven. You shall offer your burnt offerings, both the flesh and the blood, on the altar. So habasar vehadam, the meat. And the blood will be offered on the Mizbeach, right? For the Olah, for the Holocaust. For o- all other sacrifices, the blood shall be poured on the altar for God, and you eat the flesh. What's missing? Let's see how much they've been paying attention to Torah study all these years. Do, 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 What's missing? We have blood. We have meat. Jody? You have to unmute. Skin and bones. So, bones, skin and cells are part of the, are part of the meat. No brain offerings. Mizbeach means altar. Mem. Um, zevach. <laughs> zevach is an offering. Mizbeach is where you make the zevach. That mem. That mem makes it the place that. Mizbeach. You you are you are offering a zevach on the Mizbeach. The thing that. Allows you to do a zebach, Lisa. What did you say in answer to the I question? Said the entrails. Ah, so what do we usually see? The suet and the fat, right you're to burn the entrails on the altar. We also see the suet and the fat. Who gets the fat? Do we remember? God. God gets the fat because it smells good it smells good that is the offering that's god's portion you get the meat you can't eat the blood right so the blood is dashed the blood is placed on the altar where's the fat where's it's burned the fat up portion of the sacrifice where'd that go it has to be boiled in a um it's roasted no, it burns up It it, it yeah. incinerates it's not here It's not here. It's gone. Micha Goodman says, do you think the Deuteronomist forgot? Do you think the Deuteronomist doesn't know? Look how few details we get. Your sacrifices, your sacrifices, your offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your sacrifices. Now remember Leviticus. Right? Remember how detailed, remember how focused, Leviticus is on offering the sacrifices exactly the right way, yeah. Yeah. Very clear about what's supposed to happen, the procedure. Yes, it's the it's the priestly manual for sure. That's its job. That's its role. Deuteronomy's not trying to do that. But look how general the descriptions are here. Your sacrifices. Your sacrifices. You're not not the Ola, the shlamim, the chatat. Right, they, not, no language here about the many different kinds of sacrifice, why you'd sacrifice, what makes a sacrifice, and a big detail. Oh yeah, God's portion is left out completely. Richard, do you want to say something?
0: I was just going to ask if um, entrails include would include by extension the internal organs. Yes. Okay. Thank you.
1: Because remember, they wanted to burn it on the altar because they shouldn't be using it for what? Divination. They shouldn't be looking at the heart or the kidney or the liver, whatever the, in the ancient world they used to look at, in order to do divination with an animal. The way you make sure that's not happening is the commandment is that it's burned on the altar. Uh, Mehmet saying in Turkish, Mizbeach means slaughterhouse. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to belabor the point, but Micha asks, so why does the Deuteronomist gloss over all the details, leave out the fat entirely, and yet this whole huge big deal is being made about sacrificing in the temple, in the temple, in the temple, in the temple, in the temple. In the temple. It seems like it's a huge deal, this sacrificing, because now it's only going to happen in the temple. Micha says that, that in Judges and Samuel and all the rest of the Torah, worship and sacrifice are allowed anywhere as long as it's in the land of Israel. Anywhere. So this is a, it's not just that Deuteronomy says it, it's that nowhere else is this the, un, the understanding. Only Deuteronomy. What is Josiah doing? Josiah is canceling all other places of worship. And this would seem to be an act that glorifies and lifts up the Jerusalem temple and would seem to suggest that the, the temple in Jerusalem is extremely important and is central, right, to Israelite worship. So he asks, Micha Goodman asks, how can Deuteronomy be so Deuteronomy be so indifferent to the details and naming of all the sacrifices while making the place of sacrifice seem so important. These two moves seem to
2: contradict each other.
1: But he says, "But, but if we look at Deuteronomy and we ask, where is God in Deuteronomy? God is not on the mountain as God was in Exodus. We mentioned this last week. God is not coming down on the mountain as God did in Exodus. God remains in the sky in the Deuteronomist's account. So God, God stays where God is and God is not on the mountain. Also, um, Exodus and Leviticus, as we mentioned last week, both place God. Where does God speak to Moshe from? Between the Kruvim on the Ark and the Holy of Holies, right? This is where the voice of the divine emanates from. We also see fire sometimes coming out from before God, presumably from right the Holy of Holies, like the one that consumed Nadav and Avihu. So how does Deuteronomy, Micha asks, understand God's presence in the temple, when you bring your fruits to the temple you're supposed to recite a prayer and in that prayer, which is in Deuteronomy 26, we ask God in that formula, remember we get very few prayers in the Bible, very, very, very few, but chapter 26 of Deuteronomy preserves one the prayer that you're supposed to say when you bring these fruits that that we're talking about now in chapter 12, when you bring those, you're supposed to say a prayer. And in that prayer, you say, may God bless us from God's heights, from the heaven, right? Where God is bless our earth, essentially bless where we are bless us on the land. When Solomon dedicates the temple, he has this huge festival, right? He's going to dedicate the temple. And how do we know that everything is okay? How do we know that it worked, that everything was done the way it was supposed to? How do we know?
2: God accepted the sacrifice.
1: God accepted the sacrifice by consuming it, right? The fire comes the the it's okay god has accepted the sacrifice and what does that mean what does that what's the actual thing that happens as god does that god now moves into the temple just like the mishkan what was the big proof that the mishkan worked god's presence right came to dwell in the mishkan for solomon the, the sacrifice was accepted, which means God has moved in to the house that God, uh, that they have built for God. That, that's a sign of success. Okay. If you look at the words of Solomon, the speech that Solomon gives at that moment where God is supposed to move in, Solomon in that speech says, you think God sits anywhere on the earth? HaShemayim, the Shmei HaShemayim, the heavens and the skies of the heavens cannot contain the divine. So it's like, which is it? Is God in the house or not in the house? Does God live here or does God not live here? Again, it seems like there's a, a tension, a contradiction in the text solomon takes sacrifice doesn't mention sacrifice in his speech there, there's a centralization right of worship going on and even in solomon's speech he says god isn't here we just built this house and you know shemayim and shema shemayim can't hold the divine so so again it looks like there's this contradiction um judith are you wanting to say something here
2: it seems to me like this is an effort to consolidate as well by having only one place where people can meet and go through this ritual and also one place where God will be able to accept the, the sacrifice, bring everybody together. It's more a, a condensation of tribalism, really. Why? Because they can, they've been told, they can now
1: eat meat wherever they want.
2: Yes, but they have to go to the... the place that God says they have to go in order to make the sacrifice
1: right but what's the point of sacrifice now well I think it's a, a direct communication okay so that so what's the point of centralizing why why consolidate why not think leave it like it is
2: let every tribe just kind of wander off on its own I think the message no, is no, no 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 let let them offer sacrifices wherever they are in ashdod
1: why not in a lot why not why consolidate what does what
2: does that do doesn't it bring the people together more instead of
1: but if if i want to bring a shlamim sacrifice i'm not coming together with anybody i'm just schlepping to jerusalem to make that sacrifice
2: thank you Mimet. i think it's a regulation you know it, Consolidates
1: the regulations. Why consolidate? That's my question. What's the move of the Deuteronomist? It gives power to whom, Susan? Who does it give power to? A move like that. Solomon. I mean, who? who you're talking about Solomon. So um... I'm talking about the tension within the text dealing with God moving into the temple. That even there. There is indication that God doesn't in fact live in the temple I'm setting it, you up for where Miha's going, but it does give power to God. God how? will tell us where and how and I don't think so I, because God could be everywhere, God can be anywhere if you're well,
2: sacrificing that's what I now,
1: but if you're sacrificing on a hilltop somewhere. And feeding your clan out of that sacrifice, you're having a meal with God. So certainly, to Dana's point, certainly the Jerusalem priesthood either gets more power or they're threatened. Because where are all the Levites going to go that are in all these little towns? and yeah. villages? now get a turn serving in the Jerusalem temple. But doesn't it bring them all to Jerusalem? They can't all be there at the same time. There's not room. There's not service for all of them. They're going to rotate. We get a rotational schedule of the priests from different places coming through the temple in Jerusalem. So So it's it's an order. Then it's it's an orderly way. The power of the priesthood away. It disempowers the priesthood. All right. Who, who, Sarah, you wanted to
2: say something? I think it distributes power to the entire people as they rotate through.
1: But they have power where they are.
2: But it makes Jerusalem holier. Okay. So this
1: is what Miha's is addressing. This is why his, his lecture was so interesting to me. That's what it looks like is happening. You're making Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem the holy focus. It lifts it up, and now it's this really super special place. So it's really giving more glory and more power to the sacrificial system, to the priests, blah, blah, blah. Micah says, no, it's exactly the opposite. Now, You are taking the sacred element out of eating meat. You are downplaying the importance of sacrifice. The fat is left off because it doesn't matter to the Deuteronomist. The details, yes, whoever just said, Natasha, yes, eating meat becomes desacralized. Eating meat becomes permissible. You don't need to go to Jerusalem to eat meat anymore. So why would you? You get to just eat your meat, right? You're going to bring your tithes and everything else to Jerusalem. It's a way of saying sacrifice is not that important. It's there. The Deuteronomist doesn't get rid of it, but the move is limiting the attachment to sacrifice because if the only way you can eat meat is when you offer a sacrifice, people were making sacrifices all the time, everywhere, all over Israel. Um, I'm going to say perhaps commoners demanded that the people finally meet for everyone, wherever they please. They could do that before they could sacrifice before in the highlands, In the village, in Santa Monica, they could sacrifice and eat meat. So what's the move of centralizing? Micha says it is to desacralize eating meat. Now, it's not a meal between you and God anymore. That is a way to limit the people's dependence on the ritual as how they connect to God. If you lean out, notice that Deuteronomist doesn't talk about the Mishkan ever, ever. If God is in the sky and is not in the temple and is not in the Mishkan, God is everywhere. You now, we have taken sacrifice eating a bologna sandwich with God. We've taken that out of people's everyday lives. It's gone. Now it's just a bologna sandwich. Why do that? I go back to the question: What does that accomplish if you if you lower the focus on the ritual on sacrifice, which was really their only real ritual, right? If you if you take off the focus on that, what what are you gonna what are you what does that accomplish? So one thing Richard is saying is it takes. It makes eating meat just a normal act, and, right? So it's, it's, it's lessening the focus on the ritual aspect.
2: Shelley, unmute. Are they preparing the community for the fact that they're going to have to move and be without the temple and have a way to have their religion and their God without the temple? Very nice, Shelley. There's
1: already a move as early as Deuteronomy to not have the ritual be focused on the temple. That's exactly what it's doing. It's moving away from temple experience as the primary experience, even as it says, only where I cause my name to dwell, only in Jerusalem, only, 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 only. It seems like it's lifting that up by making it so special, when in fact it's doing exactly what Shelley says. It's de-emphasizing the rituals that are attached to the temple. And David, to your point, it disempowers the priests because if you no longer need a priest to eat meat, if you can't sacrifice in your backyard anymore, you don't go see the priest very often. Maybe if you think you have leprosy, right? But you, Or you're seriously impure from corpse contamination and need to deal with that, right? But it it de emphasizes the importance of the priesthood. Because now it's desacralizing, it's secularizing meat, taking away the people's experience of the ritual of sacrifice if you're remember, Deuteronomy is about subsuming everything under the law, everything under the law, meaning the priests as well. You start to deemphasize the role of the priest as ritual officiant in your daily life and in your village. If you do that, if you deemphasize ritual, deemphasize emphasize sacrifice, de-emphasize the temple. What do you have left? What are you emphasizing? Yes, it's a statement by the Deuteronomist. What are you emphasizing? Community? You, can, you could eat meat before with your community as a sacrifice. What, what about community, Sarah?
2: And then Mehmet? You're emphasizing the ordinary people's ability to carry on the important work. Okay, good. So
1: taking it out of the hands of the priests, yeah. and we know the Deuteronomist wants to take it out of the hands of the king and give it to the law. So let's keep going down that rabbit hole. Mehmet, and then Michael.
0: Um, I, I think I remember from last week that the Deuteronomy was written post-exilic. So um, by that time, they're not in in, in the holy lands anymore.
2: So, so to show
1: so they us, are, they're going to have to live without the temple anyway.
0: So, you, well, this this whole change uh, enables Jews to be Jews anywhere they are, without Correct. a temple.
1: Correct. So, or whether, so without Jerusalem. Whether that's a result of the exile or not, right? That's the move the Deuteronomist is making: is that you can do the law. Wherever you are, that's the effect, whether that's the intent or not. That's one of the effects is that now Judaism becomes portable. Not altogether, because you still have to bring your tithes and your first fruits Mm -hmm. and all of that. You still have to bring it to the temple. It's not getting rid of temple ritual or the priesthood. It is subsuming the importance of it under the law. Well, by the
0: time, by the time um, Deuteronomy was, was written, uh, uh, Judaism was already portable.
1: We don't know how much a... is post-exilic. Okay. We don't know that. We, it can be that much of Deuteronomy was written after the north fell oh, okay. Okay. and is centralizing worship in Judah, where Jerusalem is. So we, we don't know. But, but we know that wound up being the effect, for sure. Michael?
0: one of one of the consequences of this desacralization of uh, sacrificial food wow. is to is is surely to desacralize animals themselves i mean once they are part of a very special ritual then they have a very special status in our larger view of life and of of meat and if you desacralize meat eating in some senses you are abandoning the mystical sense of the animals themselves.
1: Okay. So maybe it's a, it's a protection against some kind of idolatrous instinct, you know, raising animals to, to a different place or a, a higher place because it's part of this connecting with God. Centralization. Here's the words of Micha Goodman removes sacrifice from people's lives. So, Yom Kippur is the day in time where, right, holiness remains and the temple ritual remains really focused. So this move of the Deuteronomist takes sacrifice, takes that ritual out of people's space, and Yom Kippur and the Deuteronomist take it out of people's sense of time. We are secularizing both of those to a new extent. And what if you do that? We were getting there. We were almost there. Some people were getting there. If you you de-emphasize all of that, what is being a good Israelite about? What is living into the covenant about?
2: How closely you follow the law. What law? Ah. So if... Deuteronomy
1: is is lessening the attachment to the ritual role of both the local shrine and in some ways secularizing their daily experience, what is left of the covenant to live into. Ve'ahavta et re'echa kamocha. You will love your neighbor as yourself. It makes it your own responsibility. You will take, no, it is the community's responsibility, but it's no longer about sacrifice. Right. Now it's about how are you treating the widow and the orphan? How honest are your weights and measures? Have you put a stumbling block before the blind? Deuteronomy by beating this horse of the centralization of worship in the temple is reducing, says Micha Goodman, if you believe him, which I'm pretty tempted to buy his argument, you are de-emphasizing sacrifice and those rituals in people's lives. You're not totally taking it away. You can't freak them out that badly and you need some kind of central shrine and some kind of coming together around that shrine and those rituals and those times of year, great, fine. But by by taking the sacred out of their daily lives, it de-emphasizes the focus on ritual and emphasizes instead that the way we keep the covenant is to live into the law. What is the law? If it's not the ritual law, take Leviticus. If it's not the ritual law, what's left? You shall love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Yes? Sacrificial spirituality is reconstructed as compassion and empathy. Beautifully said, Richard. Right? And as Bert said, it becomes about morality and justice. Sedek, tzedek, tirdof. Justice, justice will you pursue. This is the Deuteronomist. When Deuteronomy says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, what follows that? So bring a sacrifice? No. Light some incense? No. What comes after Shmay Israel, Elohino Adonai Echad? Vishinantam, Levanecha, Vidiba, Tabam, Beshifta, Bebetecha, Uvlech, Tabaderech, Ushokbecha, Ukumecha. You shall speak of them. Speak of what? The words of Torah, the words of Deuteronomy. You will speak them. When you lie down and when you rise up, when you're on the road, when you're running errands, when you're home, the Shinan Tam Levanecha, and you shall teach them to your children. The words become the focus when you pull the focus off the ritual. Listen to the Veahavta differently from now on. It is a radical move. We see the Ve'ahavta as normative. It was a radical, revolutionary move by the school of Deuteronomy. At the time, the temple still stood. At the time where where altars were all over the land of Israel and were kosher. That's when this shift is made saying, "Mm mm-mm. It is the words. Take these words that I speak to you today to heart. Yeah? The words become the focus in the argument of Micha Goodman. Language expands as ritual contracts. This allowed, again, it may not have been the main point, but it allowed Judaism to move from being a ritual place-based experience to being the words and the ideas and the ideals and the values, and those are portable. Those are portable. Had sacrifice evolved into prayer yet? No, it had not. But the move is here towards that. Right, this is what the Deuteronomist is trying to do: keep those words *bilvavecha* in your heart. That's that is how you live into the covenant and fulfill the covenant. Is the words and the ideals and the values that that Deuteronomy is coming to teach, that the law is coming to instruct about, and so Bert, that that move is the first step away from sacrifice and towards prayer being one of the new ways to relate. Um, but they still have sacrifice for sure. Um, but I think what Micha Goodman is arguing, and I think it's brilliant, is that this, this move, this shift is what sets it all up. The Deuteronomist is trying to downplay ritual. I'm not saying that's an accident. He, is saying that's exactly the move here, because the Deuteronomist knows there's corruption. They're very concerned about corruption. So the Deuteronomist under Josiah is going to move everything under the law, the king's power, the judiciary, the priests, the prophets, everybody comes under the law now. Well, if you want the priests and everything to come under the law and be subsumed under the law, you need to de-emphasize people's attachment to those very rituals that only the Levites could perform, right? If you can take baloney out of the package now, the Levite becomes much less powerful, much less necessary, much less... An agent of your relationship, mitigating the relationship between you and the divine, because baloney has nothing to do with God anymore. It's just baloney. Yeah. So sometimes I, I should think before I come up with metaphors. Um, so right. So so here, this is Micha's argument that the critique of sacrifice that we get, like in the Psalms. Think about Isaiah that we read on Yom Kippur. You all know it by heart. You don't know you know it, but you know it by heart. Is this the sacrifice I want? Right? Do I need your turkey sandwich? No. What do I want? For you to unfetter the chains of poverty, for you to reach out to those who don't have. Remember Isaiah? We read it with great passion on Yom Kippur and great pride. Because you know what? We're proud of this move that the Deuteronomist makes, aren't we? Do I really care about your sacrifices, says the God of Isaiah? No. Fet on your sacrifices. I care about, are you enacting justice, compassion? Do you see the orphan and the widow? Do you take it seriously that their well-being is your responsibility? Are you building an Israelite society, reflective of Torah values or not. That is what I care about, says the God of Isaiah. And we still read that thousands of years later because we love that move. But they work for the ACLU, says Richard Project, Right? So we love that move. We are still people attached to that move. We are still people in progressive Judaism who say ritual is great. Ritual is important. If ritual becomes the point, it is useless. Micha says this is the move of the Deuteronomist. Ritual is nice. Ritual has its place. If ritual becomes the only thing, ritual is useless. Less than useless. It pulls your focus off of your religious obligations that are the things that will prevent you being kicked off the land that we talked about at such uh, length last week. Ritual only has value, says Micha, insofar as you acknowledge that it has limited value. If it gets all the value, it's worthless. And so it's, its value is only established after criticism and cutting it back, right, um, occur. Ritual can ossify into structures of oppression for sure. And Richard, I would go further and say the Deuteronomist is suggesting it already had. Right? I think you're right. I think your instinct is exactly right. That uh, according to me argument anyway, that the Deuteronomist, that school understood that it had already ossified into something that was not helpful. Um, And so it was a move away from that and a way to de-emphasize it.
2: Linda. How does Kashrut figure into all of this? In what way? Well, were they,
1: Eliminating
2: it? Were they moving Kashrut. it along? Kashrut
1: was only about which animals you're allowed to eat.
2: I know, but um, if, they
1: can't eat if, anything that's
2: treif. Okay. They they so can't. They, all right. I was I was just thinking if they were, could eat whatever they wanted to wherever they were. No, they, no, no.
1: It says you can now kill from your flocks. Okay. Wherever you are, but you can't eat what's not allowed. All right. But remember, it's very limited. Kashrut's very limited at that point. It's only about species. It's not about anything else. And you can't eat something trafe torn. So they would have had to slaughter it and eat it. It could not... You can't eat road pizza.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Um, so what do the ultra-Orthodox think about this interpretation? Susan asks, which interpretation? The one that says by... Limiting well, sacrifice to the temple, you are de emphasizing ritual?
2: No. I'm I'm thinking about the fact that they that, that they rely so much on ritual in their practice. Um and so I'm wondering if they're reading this the same way Micah is Mika is, they would disagree perhaps.
1: Okay, so first of all perhaps you think. So first of all, yeah, they might disagree with a lot that we say uh, in this room. Um, but, but the second point is, for them, this is not the move of a Deuteronomist. This is not the move of an author. This is God. Mm.
2: Okay. Right.
1: Uh, then what are they going to argue? What, what are we going to argue about? We, the argument starts at God wrote this, no, the Deuteronomist did. The, the argument is that fundamental. There's no point in the conversation because they don't see a motive. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. They see God telling us what to do, and we go, okay. We'll do that. But, but then they, they kind of have to contend with the fact that this is different from Exodus and Leviticus, right? This is and Samuel and judges where they were sacrificing everywhere, but that's not my job to have to figure out how they deal with that. Um, There was another question, Meg, what for the lack of, what about the, what, what about the lack of ritual in society may not ritual become a way to connect outside of oneself to remember the other. Of course, that's what it's for. The problem is when the ritual becomes the focus and not the means by which you leave the self and connect to the other. And clearly the Josianic reform understands whether that's right or wrong, whether they're correct or incorrect. They, um, the, the, that school, and under Josiah, they saw that it was there was too much focus on the ritual aspect, and not enough concern for how do I leave the focus on me and have greater uh, you know greater empathy and greater awareness of the people who who aren't necessarily like me, who I'm supposed to see as being like me? Right? Al, did you want to say something? If so, you're going to have to unmute again. There
0: you go. I just did. Okay. Okay. Uh, the fact that, the, that they de-emphasize the uh, temple now at a later year when the temple was destroyed, that becomes such a focus of the prophets. Uh, and it should be de-emphasized. For some reason, people should have an, an emphasis on the morality and all the laws of the of, the, of God rather than treating the loss of the temple as such a calamitous event.
1: Right. And, w- and what's so funny to me always is the folks who want to, who pray for the third temple and who want the sacrifice back and want the rituals of the temple back. And they focus on every detail. So lovingly would be out of a job. If that happened, they don't want that. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, well, they they want to get rid of the uh, priests and,
1: Right. They and don't want the priest to come back and be the boss of Judaism.
0: They don't that
1: want it. Led, I think that, that, so that, led to
0: fact, that led to the uh, combination where rabbis became the focus of the worship.
1: Indeed. Indeed. The teacher of the law right. becomes who is the functionary in connecting the people to God and to God's will. Yeah. Right, it becomes the rav. Right. Yeah. You're right. It becomes the teacher of the words, the teacher of the ideas, not the officiant at the ritual. Right. That's that's exactly the move that Micha Goodman would argue begins here with the Josianic form reform of the Deuteronomist school. All right, Bert. You said you wanted to say something. Have yeah, ever-
0: I. I f- I think that the word ritual, unfortunately, has become synonymous with empty. And I don't see, I I see what you're talking about, and ritual can be empty, and ritual can also be filled with meaning and connected to morality. I don't think, I'm forgetting about sacrifice, that they are necessarily opposites. They're not. Uh, Right, exactly. That's why the
1: Deuteronomist doesn't get rid of sacrifice.
0: Right, but r- ritual, just because something is a ritual doesn't mean it's potentially worthless.
1: Correct. That's, unless, right. unless that's
0: not what's being... The question is, if you do ritual without also loving your neighbor. Yes. That's not a problem.
1: If it's all about your kiddish cup and your havdalah set and that's it, then it's worthless.
0: But that's not saying don't have the Havdalah set.
1: No, of course okay. not. God forbid. That's why Micha says they did not do away with sacrifice. There should be ritual. You still should schlep your tithes to the temple. There still needs to be a priesthood. There still needs to be all of this. When it becomes the only thing, then it has no value. It has to have limited value. And the point of ritual should be to point you towards those other things, when it becomes the focus itself, just like we read on Yom Kippur with Isaiah, is this the fast I want? Fet on your fast. Are you taking care of the immigrant children at your border? Are you taking care of those people who are being left behind because of COVID-19? That's what I care about. Fooey on your fast are we supposed to stop fasting? No. (laughs) Right. So you kind of, um, Judith, Karen, Bubby saying I agree with Bert that that ritual is my reminder of the words. Right. That's how it's supposed to work. Right. Um, and it becomes Robert Gorin says the other problem with sacrifice is that it easily becomes transactional. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly right. This is not a critique of the system. This is a critique of people, Jews, people whose tendency is to over-rely on the form. Right? Because it's easier. When the ritual is a reminder of the words, like Bubby said, yes, that's right. That's the point. When we make Kiddush, it's Zecher Leitzia Mitzrayim. It's a remember of the going out from Egypt. The ritual is supposed to point you towards the, the teaching, the point, right? You get to make Kiddush over this amazing cup of wine, and you're free and get to drink this wine and own this wine because I took you out of Egypt. And that gives you obligations, right? That, that's exactly right. So th- I find this is exact for us. Like I think Bert kind of indicated for us as progressive Jews, I feel like it kind of works the other way. We have a hard time connecting a lot of our people to ritual because there's no meaning for them in the ritual as being a way to connect to the divine, to a sense of the sacred, to, to whatever it is that ritual is supposed to do for us. So a lot of our people really struggle So ours is not so much what the Deuteronomist is worried about. Although don't get me started. Trust me, I could, I could go there, but, but I think, but I think it's, we're not immune to what the Deuteronomist is worried about, right? Like we, we over rely on the things that we can say are proof of us being good people or whatever. But like, are we really stretching? Are we really seeing the other? Are we really seeing the poor? Are we really giving to where it hurts? Mehmet, you want to say something?
0: Well, I th- I think even today, uh, rituals um, become way too commercialized, you know, in certain times. Like, I mean, um, for example, how much do you spend for your bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah? And what kind of a party do you throw in and nice. all that? rituals rituals um there's always a tendency wherever there are people there's always a tendency to commercialize things and go away from uh its original meaning um i i I wanted to come back and i think rituals continued in private homes um just like lighting shabbat candles you know which is rabbinic. Uh, yeah i wanted to ask that is it in the torah it's not in the torah right
1: all of that is rabbinic once you don't have a temple, now you need, you
0: make make your own temple. The
1: altar, your home becomes the temple, your home becomes a mikdash me'at, a small sanctuary for the divine. Exactly the move the rabbis make. They're not stupid. The pagans need a tree inside during the winter time. No problem. It is now a Christmas tree. No problem. The rabbis were brilliant, right? They they took elements that would have before been you know different and moved them into the home, and and have the chutzpah to say, "Asher kiddushanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu," who chose, who uh, asher, who made us holy, who sanctifies us and commands us to light Shabbos candles. Really, where? Show me. Asher kid is shadow, v'tzivanu, is chutzpah. It is holy chutzpah. The rabbis say, who, com- who made us holy with your commandments and commanded us to fill in the blank with the stuff they just made up. That's chutzpah. <laughs> right. So, but it had weight. If God commands it, I'm fulfilling God's commandment. This becomes a kosher ritual, but they made it up, <laughs> right? Yes. And we still love it. Absolutely. We do. So this was a brilliant move um, to, and like I was saying, maybe it's not as much for us, but all you have to do, if I get my colleague started, my Christian colleague started on Easter, she can go on for an hour and a half without taking a breath. What's happened to Easter this is what the Deuteronomist is worried about. You eat chocolate bunnies and hide Easter eggs in the backyard, and you think you're living into what the risen Christ demands of you? All <laughs> right, so the Easter bunny is exactly what the Deuteronomist is concerned about. I mean, that's a. am that's a, not trying to be disrespectful. That, that's exactly what Deuteronomy is worried about is the Easter bunny becoming Easter. Santa becomes the birth of the sun. Really? (laughs) For practicing believing Christians who think these rituals are supposed to point them towards, what does it mean that Jesus came here for us? That God became incarnate and suffered and died for us lowly human beings? That's about a fat guy in a suit coming down your chimney with presents, right? That's a horrifying reduction of the rituals and trappings becoming the point and moving folks off of what that time, what those rituals were actually supposed to be pointing people towards. All right, David, and then we will close. Uh,
0: Amy, is there a danger that the ultra-Orthodox, with their focus on extreme observance of behavior on a daily basis, is that a pseudo-ritual that they would now look at <clears throat> based on what we've talked about and say maybe we're focusing too much on things as opposed to substance?
1: Well, this, the Deuteronomist would say yes. That's the critique of the Deuteronomist. You're so worried about the hecksure on your salami. Like that's what's really important. Are you making sure other people have salami? Are you making sure kids that aren't getting fed at school have access to other meals? Right. So the obsession with the minutia and the ritual and the detail. Yes, that can become an impediment, says the school of Deuteronomy to fulfilling the laws that are actually the ones that are going to make you a society worthy of God's blessing. Yes. So, and for all of us, there's a, you're right. That, that critique holds for all of us that too often the, the form becomes what's important instead of the function. And, um, and when we rely too much on those things, then where's, where's the heart of what, Torah is supposed to be doing in terms of helping us build a society, right? That is one of justice and one of equity and one of compassion. And I think it's an important teaching and an important reminder for us right now. And it may not just be about sacrifice or ritual, but it may be like the, the stuff we, the, the stuff we focus on is often Dafka, the stuff that pulls us off of focusing on the ways that we could really be addressing the, the, the wants and the struggle of many, many, many people in our society. I mean, that we look at that number, 166,000 some odd people, and we're still arguing about masks. I'm sorry. What do you think the Deuteronomist would have to say about that?